church, can we give Jesus some praise? I'll tell you all, yesterday I took a couple of minutes to Google um, George Lyle. I would encourage you to do that. Read, on, read up on this man's life. It's amazing. Uh, and his story actually and his commitment to evangelism sort of ties into the message today. Um, so I, I, I really do encourage you to do that. Do you all miss me? <laughs> it's been a minute, right? Uh, listen, Pastor Zeb um, was anticipating being here today. He is going to be preaching tomorrow and Tuesday at the Baptist University of Florida, which is his alma mater. And uh, there were some travel arrangements that had to be reworked here in the last couple of days. So that is where he is. He is in Florida this morning, missing being here. Um, we want to absolutely keep him in, in prayer as he shares um, with the young people down there tomorrow and Tuesday. I know it's going to be a, a huge blessing for them. And we also obviously pray safe travels, getting him back here home to us. Um, we're going to be spending our time today looking at the call to evangelize. And uh, we'll be in John's Gospel, chapter 4 of John's Gospel, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there now. Um, but before we get started, let me, let me pray for us. Father God, we are grateful for the gift of this day, Lord. We're grateful for the opportunity that you faithfully provide for us each and every week to gather in this place, to be blessed by your perfect truth, to be here to encourage one another, to pray for one another, and to just surrender to you the things of the world that may be weighing us down, and to find rejuvenation through the recognition that your Holy Spirit is indwelling and that it's with us always. And I pray, Lord God, that you bless this word, um, that it speaks to our hearts here this morning and helps us to understand and see that it's one thing for you to transform a sinner. It's another thing for that sinner to then take up the joy of that moment and share it with others. So let us receive that message into our hearts and minds this morning. Lord God, we love you. And we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. So for many of us, when we hear the word evangelist, I'll go out on a limb and, and assume that we picture one of two things. First is probably Billy Graham, right? Arguably the, the greatest uh, modern day evangelist um, of all time, preaching in overflowing arenas in the four corners of the world. Or, or as a contrast to that, someone who is just standing on a street corner, shouting out, Bible verses and words of encouragement and encouraging everyone who passes by to take the time to come and know Jesus. And, and those are two explicitly credible forms of evangelizing. But what I hope to, to help us get a hold of today is that evangelism, as Jesus encourages it, and actually demonstrates it isn't always about reaching massive crowds, right? It's not always about taking to a, to a public square somewhere and sharing his word, although that is obviously an awesome thing to do. At the end of the day, evangelism is simply you and me taking the specific intimate way in which Jesus has blessed us and then joyfully and confidently sharing that with someone. And it may be the person sitting next to you on a long flight somewhere, could be a coworker, um, could be the person in line in, in front of you at the register at Costco. Um, if you have shopped at the Costco here in Apex, you know that by the time you get to the register, you need Jesus. <laughs> so it's a, it's a perfect opportunity to share witness right there. So today we're gonna look at, at a pivotal moment 
of evangelism from Jesus' ministry that you're all familiar with. You've, you've all heard this account, but I'm not sure that we take the time to really meditate on its significance and, and what it means for us even today. So I'm gonna cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. Um, so pray for me and let's get to it. Um, John chapter four, starting in verse one. If you're there, say amen. Perfect, I'm gonna read the first 12 verses. John writes, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's important. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So a tiny bit of, of historical context here. So Jesus leaves Judea because the Pharisees are getting a little bit riled up over the number of followers he's drawing. And he and the disciples, uh, they leave Judea and they're, they're heading back to, to Galilee. And as they do that, John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is a big deal because Jews at the time were practically forbidden to travel through Samaria. Back then, if you were planning a trip and your GPS showed Samaria as part of the fastest route, you, you, you kept scrolling for the next option. So what was the fear of Samaria all about? Well, here's some homework for you. This afternoon, you go home, you break out your Old Testament, and you read 2 Kings chapter 17, and you'll get all the details of why this is the way it is. If I try to get into it all now, We'll be here till tomorrow. So in a nutshell, there was a period of intermarriage that took place in Samaria between Jews and various outsiders that had been placed in Samaria by the Assyrians who were holding Israel in exile. So this mixing of the populace leads to, leads to all kinds of, of spiritual compromises on the part of the Jews who took to marrying these non-Jewish idol worshipers. So from all that compromise and, and lack of obedience to God, this new religion forms in Samaria that mixes minimal adherence to the first five books of the Old Testament with idol worship. So Samaritans, for the most part, come to reject Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, most Jewish traditions and rituals, the teaching of the prophets, and they make idol practice, idol worship, a daily practice. So Jews who remain faithful in time, they come to view Samaritans as inferior half-breeds. They even imply that there's demonic possession that takes place there. And that in turn develops into this mutual hatred between them, Jews and Samaritans. It's really, it's a form of early racism when you, when you think about it. But even with all that bad blood, Jesus has to go through Samaria, no doubt leaving the disciples um, both scared and confused because it is dangerous for a Jew to walk through Samaria at this time. But Jesus is gonna do that with us sometimes, right? As he prepares our hearts to serve him, Jesus may lead us to things that leave us wondering, 
what he's up to. And it's in those moments that we need to double down in our faith because it typically means that Jesus is getting ready to do something big in your life. So Jesus enters Samaria and he stops in this town called Sychar, which is a Hebrew word that interestingly enough translates to falsehood. And it's midday, it's hot, Jesus is tired and he's thirsty, so he takes a seat at this well, Jacob's well. And the well was originally dug by Jacob, as the word tells us. It was used by Jacob, his sons, and their livestock. <clears throat> to the Samaritans, it's kind of a sacred place. It's sort of like this, you know, I guess, historic landmark. Um, and it's the sixth hour of the day, which under the Roman system for marking time made it high noon. So Jesus has sent the disciples off to buy food. And this Samaritan woman comes to the well with her water jar to draw water. So once she's situated and getting ready to start doing her, her thing, Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, now, two things are worth making a note of here. One is that Jesus does know exactly who this woman is. He knows why she's here in the middle of the day, in the heat of the, of the day, drawing water, when most women do that same chore early in the morning before it gets hot. She is the one and only reason why Jesus has come to Samaria. Now, the woman, on the other hand, she, she sees Jesus through a different lens. We're not told exactly how it is that she knows Jesus is a Jew. I don't know if it's an accent thing or the way he's dressed. We don't know. What we do know is that because he's a Jew, you can feel it. She becomes instantly defensive. And the fact that he's asking her for a drink only makes her more afraid and more defensive. For Jesus to even speak to her is, is shocking. So she asked Jesus point blank how it is that he could even think to ask her such a thing. And, and Jesus' response initially is it's kind of cryptic. He starts to tell her about living water, you know, something that in the moment makes absolutely no sense to her. So she responds, I read it as it's kind of snarky and again, sort of defensive. She points out to Jesus that, hey, you know, buddy, you've got no way to draw water, living or otherwise, from this very deep well. You've got, you got no bucket, you've got no water jar. And then she sort of tries to take Jesus down a notch by reminding him that he's also not Jacob. So for lots of reasons, she is preparing in this moment to defend herself from the degradation that she is sure is gonna come from this Jewish man who is boldly asking her for a drink. So we pick up in verse 13, <clears throat> Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So, so Jesus starts off here by trying to, to calm her fears a little bit by giving her a little more clarity about this, this living water and that it has nothing to do with what's found in the depths of, of Jacob's well. That water is just a worldly thing that offers a temporary relief to a bodily need, which is just thirst. The living water Jesus is talking about goes, goes way beyond that. So Jesus is talking about something transformational here, right? Something that leads to something greater, namely eternal life. And, and that somehow seems to reach her. Because if you look at the change in her tone, she calls Jesus, sir. So Jesus' reason for being here is slowly being realized. This, this divine appointment is about to shift into, into high gear. 
And so she asked Jesus for some of this living water because the earthly water that she trudges to this well for every day by herself in the oppressive heat represents nothing to her but hurt and alienation and exhaustion. And isn't it amazing how when we feel that broken, even if we know or care nothing about Jesus or we've created a wall between ourselves and him that he still shows up. We need to every day take the time to to realize and accept that there is nothing, nothing that we can do that could ever cause Jesus to reject us. And that is not an easy kind of love to find on this side of heaven. And it got me thinking how over the years I've been blessed to share with hundreds of men serving long prison terms um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in that environment, the earthly consequence of their sin isn't going anywhere. It is what it is, and, and they're dealing with it. But knowing Jesus has blessed them with this hopeful expectation of eternal life, that beyond those prison walls, someday there's going to be something better. And that degree of freedom came to those men because other men were willing to go into those places and share Jesus with them. And it's very similar to what we're going to see Jesus do here. So back to the well, Jesus' words have the Samaritan woman really now wanting to know more about living water. And Jesus is like, absolutely, it's important for you to know everything about it, but here's what you need to do. Go home and get your husband and bring him back because he needs to hear about it as well. And she tells Jesus, and I picture it as being maybe a little sheepish, shamed maybe, that she has no husband. And Jesus responds, he tells, I know, I know you don't, but you've been married five times and you're living with someone now who isn't your husband. It's important to understand here as this interaction is taking place, Jesus is not speaking down to this woman. He is not confronting her. He's not in any way attempting to shame her. In my mind, I'm guessing that as he's saying these things to her, I I picture his eyes actually filling with, with tears. Why? Because this broken child is his. And to him, no matter her circumstances, when he looks at her, he sees radiance and he sees beauty but he also sees someone who is lost. And as her savior, Jesus' only desire in that moment is to not just make her feel better, but to make her feel new. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So after Jesus acknowledges her relationship issues, the woman quickly changes the subject from men and husbands to religion. And it's funny, you know, over the last few weeks, I've had a few random opportunities to speak with folks who have been church hurt. And I I think, you know, we all know that term and what it represents. And, And they've gotten to a place where maybe they don't worship anymore. They don't follow Jesus or they question the goodness of Jesus because this denomination that they've been attached to is just, it's all about money and the pastor's all about being a celebrity. And and I sit there on Sunday and I do all the things, I kneel and I sing and I tithe and I get nothing out of it. 
And, and I understand, and that's horrible to experience that and to go through that particular trial. It's discouraging. But listen, that stuff happens when you find yourself following a religion instead of following Jesus Christ. So denominations, listen, denominations are just man-made entities that fail. And, and pastors, believe this or not, they're just human beings who mess up all the time. My wife will be here at the 11.30. Stick around and ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> Jesus Christ, his gospel, him crucified for you and for me, that's what you want to be following. But, but this woman, you know, she lays out for Jesus the religious differences that make Samaritans feel inferior and fuels their hatred for the Jews. And she sees Jesus as wise at this point, obviously, maybe even prophetic, but, but she tells him, look, our ancestors have taught us that this mountain is the holiest place there is. You Jews, you say it's Jerusalem, but you don't let Samaritans come to Jerusalem to worship. And it all just makes God seem very far away. And she's right. Because in the minute that we get hung up on, on mountains and cities and buildings and rituals and statues, God will seem far away. And he's far away because intentional or not, there's come about this submission to things that he's not present in. So look, Jesus says it much better than I can. This is, this is evangelism at its best. Jesus hears her frustration and he tells her, you're right, but, and then he kind of gives it to her straight. God the Father isn't about which mountain offers a superior environment for you to worship on. And, and Jesus has come to break those barriers down. And he lends credibility to that by, by telling her, look, the truth is Samaritans have in fact rejected most of what God says is necessary to follow him. And when he then tells her that salvation is from the Jews, he's not reinforcing this Jewish superiority thing. All he's saying is that it was the Jews who God chose to reveal his plans to, and that part of that plan was to bring forth the Savior through Jewish lineage. And he goes on to sort of acknowledge that even the Jews have managed to mess up both of those gifts with their disobedience and their religiosity. And he tells her, and, and this is vitally important in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So that, that's self-reflection time, right? Are you a true worshiper of the Father? And what does that even mean? You know, Jesus tells the woman it means that we worship the Father in spirit and truth. So when we worship in spirit, it means that our focus is never on the things of the world. Our focus is on constantly drinking in the living water of God's word so that we can know eternal life with him. So when we worship in truth, we're accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's perfect and inerrant. We see no need to add to it. We see no add to take from it. It is good news that makes a way for you and me to go to him anytime, joyfully, humbly, confidently, and find rest and communion with him. So Jesus points out that God is spirit. He is not an idol. He's not a plot of land. He's not a building in Jerusalem. He's not a mountain here in Samaria. He is bigger than all that. And now finally, Jesus is going to evangelize to another human being in a way that he's yet to do up to this point. Verse 25 says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So John doesn't give us much 
to go on here. But as I was reading this the last couple of days, I did find it interesting that the Samaritan woman would make the claim that she knows a Messiah is coming and that he will set everybody straight when it comes to all this, this worshiping stuff that people are, are hung up on. And I would have thought that the idea of, of Messiah would have been outside the Samaritan way of thinking. Doesn't matter. All that matters is Jesus' response to her. I who speak to you am he. Sister, you know the Messiah is coming. Well, here he is. And that is pure evangelism presented in one sentence and it's shared with love and compassion and calm, which are three things that we need to, you know, love God, love people, make disciples. That's the key. The actual biblical definition of evangelism is spreading the gospel through personal witness. And it's not necessarily done in arenas with thousands of people present or with bullhorns on a street corner. This is just Jesus revealing himself to a sinner. And not just any sinner, but keep this in mind too. A woman who is still openly living in sin. A woman who apparently has been an adulteress. Her sin has her living in isolation. She's been rejected. She's been made an outcast by her community. She is humiliated. Every time she has to go to this well in the middle of the day to avoid contact with others because of the shame it would subject her to. Now you try and think for a minute of someone less deserving to have an audience with the Messiah. Put yourself in her spot. What does Jesus know about you? He's here showering this woman with a truth that up till now he has shared with no one else, that the Messiah has arrived and that the first person to receive that news is a woman who all the world sees as the absolute least. And if Jesus can go there and do that, what in the world would ever convince any of us that we live beyond the reach of that same grace and that same love? Verse 27, just then his disciples came back, perfect timing. They marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman, but no one said to her, what do you seek? They didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And I'm not sure that John does full justice to this scene as the disciples come back to the well. You know, they come back, they see Jesus sitting there talking not just to a woman, which on its own would have set them back, but a Samaritan woman. So understand that their instant perception would be that Jesus is interacting with a half-breed, maybe demon-led woman who's in a place where she shouldn't be at a, at a time of day that she shouldn't be. But none of them question her. They have no idea that Jesus has given her the gospel truth through his own personal witness, I am the Messiah. But what does that lead her to do hearing that? Two things. First, she drops the thing that has come to both symbolize and enslave her to her sin, the thing that has made her sin her defining characteristic. She drops that heavy water jar and she doesn't give it a second thought. Because the very second that you come to know Jesus this way, you are a new creation. And the old things that used to define you have been swept away and you are new. Next, now that she knows what she knows about her savior, she's gonna go to a place where she realizes that before she even gets there, she's gonna be met with extreme opposition, but she has no choice. Because the first thing we're called to do once we know Jesus as our Lord and savior is to tell others. 
And when you know you're there, when the worry of what you might face when sharing Jesus is eclipsed by the need in your heart to do it anyway, that's evangelism. That's a shout out to my street corner evangelist right there. But we can almost sense this woman's joy as she declares to anyone listening that they need to come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And their resounding question to that declaration is, can this man be the Christ? So apparently the question gets the people of Sychar thinking because they leave town and they go to the well to see Jesus and they've been motivated to do that. Keep this in mind by the one person living among them who you would never believe could get people moving that way. And again, just as it was with Jesus, this woman's evangelizing consisted of one sentence, 12 words, and the hearts of an entire community, upon hearing it, they become hungry for more. Now, I want to jump down to, um, to verse 39 and try to bring, bring this all together for us. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town, Sychar, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. That's awesome. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So here's one for the you never know what might happen when you share Jesus with someone crowd, right? Knowing all we know about this woman... Her simple sharing of this brief encounter with Jesus stirs up an entire community of people who just, you know, keeping it real here, hate Jewish people. So they come to Jesus at the well and they invite him to stay with them in a place where an hour ago he truly needed to be afraid of even walking through. But again, here's the thing. Jesus was sent to break down barriers. And yes, you know, he forgives sinners and he calls us to serve in all kinds of ways, but we should never underestimate the effect that a united faith in him these days can have on things like racial division and hate. You know, imagine a world where we see our faith in Jesus Christ as the thing that defies us instead of the, the fleshy things of the world that we allow to divide us. So the people of Sychar, based on nothing but Jesus' word, they set aside centuries of hate and contempt for Jews so that they could draw nearer to him. And that might be a lesson for somebody someplace. So trying to wrap this all up. When the townspeople turn to this woman again, it's with a collective voice that I think sort of rings with gratitude because they tell her that while their faith was kindled by her evangelizing, their newfound trust in Jesus has come from the fact that after she told them about this man who knew every horrible thing she ever did and loved her anyway, they felt led to come and hear for themselves. And because of that, they came to know that Jesus was indeed the savior of the world. So the question is, what about you? You know, if today is your day sitting at that well, and you're ready to not just receive Jesus, but then tell others too, uh, after service, I'll be right there. I'll be blessed to talk to you about that. There'll be other pastors and staff folks outside the worship center here, same thing. Happy to answer any questions you might have about developing an abiding faith in Jesus Christ. But in closing, let me tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't ever be intimidated by the call to evangelize. Because all you need to do in the simplest terms is share with someone how Jesus Christ changed your life. And then he'll take it from there. Amen. Amen. Father God, we're grateful.
for grace and mercy, Lord. We're grateful for the deep and abiding love that you have for us, even when we have intentionally and willfully separated ourselves from you. And it is that grace that brings us back into your presence and transforms us from the inside out. And as, as wonderful as those things are, as wonderful as it is to know the indwelling of that Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that today in this moment, you bless us with the empowerment and the confidence and the boldness to share maybe in just the simplest of terms how you took a broken sinner and made a new creation. And let that, just like it was with this, this broken sister in Sychar, let it be the thing that lights a fire in an entire community and the people will put down what they're doing and come and seek you and be blessed by your word and be blessed by your truth and become followers of you, Lord God, and understand in their hearts and in their minds that you truly are the savior of the world. So use us, use us as you see fit, Lord, to lead that movement. Help us to be that light that demonstrates to everyone around us that we do in fact love you, that we love all people, and that it is our heart's desire to make disciples because that is the hope of this world. And for that and all the blessings that you bring into our lives, Lord, we love you and we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.